You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Perhaps this squalid, shameful piece has something to do with the introduction of the telephone, at least for the well-off, which allows ambigrissians to call up total strangers and breathe at them, make funny noises, or vent our rage at the string of flat, bloodless festivals. The telephone, come to us from the caliph, his empire a domesticated beast, taken to colonizing through commerce rather than warfare, the ghost of the rebel stretcher Jones, as Duncan might have put it, would never have recognized this temporarily toothless empire slumped back on its haunches. Jeff Vandermeer is the author of City of Saints and Madmen, Venice Underground and Secret Life. His new novel is Shriek, and afterward. Welcome to the program, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Jeff, one thing that I've noticed in your fiction is that you seem to like the underground. There's a lot of underground in your fiction. Tell us why you're always looking up from the bottom up. <laughs> well, I guess it just depends. Um, in some cases, it's just a literal underground, and in some cases, it's a more symbolic one. I think in Venice Underground, it's a very symbolic underground in that the the whole book is kind of an updating in some ways of the Orpheus myth, and so the underground has all these mythic connotations. And in fact, that's where all the kind of mythic creatures in the book hide or dwell. In Ambergris, I think it's just a function of the reality of the situation, which is to say that there are these indigenous people who have been uprooted by the people who have taken over the city, and they're reduced to living underground because that's the only place left to them. You create in both books, though, there's this kind of a fear of the dark beneath us or within us mm-hmm. that seems to look like it's going to like overtake us at any moment. It's a very interesting uh, concept. Could you tell me a little bit, uh, are are you afraid? Did you get trapped in a cave as a kid? <laughs> well, I think I think in, on some level it is uh, basically a fear of the unknown or a fear of what our our own ign- ignorance brings to us. And um, I, I wasn't really trapped in a cave or anything. I did go spelunking quite a bit, <laughs> and 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 got stuck in a few caves. Um, <laughs> How old were you when <laughs> but, this happened? Uh, uh, probably about uh, eleven or so. Um, but no, I, I, I think uh, I can't remember anything from my childhood that would necessarily give me a fear of the unknown. And the thing that always strikes me as interesting is I don't really have, I don't really find the stories as horrific in places as some readers do. So I guess it just depends on your point of view. Um, in Venice, for example, I find the underground to be kind of a strangely beautiful place. And uh, one thing I do find is that I tend to wed kind of beauty and horror at the same time. And I'm pretty sure I know where that comes from because uh, when I was growing up in Fiji, I had a lot of allergies and I had asthma. And so I was in this tropical paradise, but I was also suffering a lot and seeing it through kind of a veil of that. And I think that's where that element in general, not so much necessarily the underground, but just in general where that comes from, the wedding of those two things. Tell us a little bit about your childhood travels. It's, mm. They aren't typical, are they? <laughs> Well, you know, they're not, they may not be typical, but I find that uh, several fantasy writers or writers who write surreal fiction sa- tend to share the same kind of characteristic. Um, we, we grew up overseas in the Fiji Islands because my um, parents were in the Peace Corps, and then we traveled overseas quite a bit as well, all over the world, basically. And uh, I found that other fantasy writers, some of them have the same background, whether they were army brats or whatever. And I think that, that, that it might be that we turn to surreal or fantasy fiction to kind of reconcile 
all the different places we've experienced, because it's not like uh, Faulkner or even Stephen King where we can focus on one childhood place and kind of build it up in our imagination. There are all these different places that we need to, that we really want to write about and, and express something about. And the only way to really do that is through something that's not quite as realistic or mimetic fiction. One thing that strikes me is that a lot of fantasy and science fiction, you can see the path from our world to the world of the book. Uh, I mean, Middle Earth is, is Tolkien. It's Earth. We know that's some kind of Earth. And a lot of science fiction, it takes place in the future or we're in the present. You can usually see how you get from where we are to where the story takes place. Your worlds are entirely hermetic. Why mm -hmm. do you cut yourself off entirely from reality? Well, I think that, first of all, I don't know that I would necessarily agree with that statement. It's true that it's secondary world fiction. Um, but there's very much a lot of the real world in it. I mean, a lot of, of Ambergris, for example, the, the city setting that I use a lot, is taken from Byzantine and Venetian history. Oh, and, and I, uh, I love that. Mm -hmm. you, you do use lots of elements of our world, but there's mm -hmm. no connection to our world. Well, there actually, I mean, well, I said there is in, in oh, stories okay. like Strange Case of X in terms of there's some suggestion that there's a link between the two worlds. I think also um, if you read between the lines, there are so many literary allusions and allusions to other things in our world that, that it's almost, I mean, to my mind, Ambergris is kind of an echo, a kind of constant, an echo and a concentrated version of the real world. So it, it may be completely separate, but I don't see it that way. I kind of see it as the strange echo or parallel world to our own that shares a lot in common with it. And, and I guess the reason that I, that I don't, don't want to accept that, that, that sealed off thing is that I, I honestly believe that, that uh, fantasy fiction that seals itself off too, too much in some way becomes irrelevant. Um, and so that's why I try to have as much cross-hatching, as much cross-connection as possible, even if it isn't in the very uh, mundane way of a character from our world going into some other world or some character from Ambergris going into the real world. In fact, I thought Stephen King kind of ruined his Dark Tower series by not leaving it hermetically sealed. I, I lost interest in it, actually, because as soon as he entered the real world, he kind of lost the things that were interesting about the, the series. So um, it's something that I've thought about, something that I've been very careful about um, to, to deal with subtly but not actually have a direct link one, that's one of the things I think that makes your fantasy so fascinating is that we're in a world that is recognizably not our own, but you'll have city names like Stockton. I mean, there's a Stockton in California. Mm -hmm. you, tell us a little bit about how you select some of the language to create a feeling of both familiarity and strangeness. Well, I think it comes a lot from uh, especially the character names. I usually try to do names that have a familiar first name and then a last name, like with Duncan Shriek, that's slightly out there, um, which I think is something you see fairly commonly in kind of a Gothic tradition. In, with, regard, with regard to place names, it just has to sound right, and it can't be too exotic because if it gets too exotic, you begin to have to justify your decisions a little bit more. And uh, the, the place is already so strange in some ways that, that it doesn't need that. But the, the thing that strikes me as funny is that I get a lot of uh, emails from readers where, where they'll say, I really love that part you made up. And, and I'll write back and I'll say, well, actually, that part, which seems fantastical to you, was actually something from Byzantine history back in the, you know, the five, six, you know, 700, 800 AD. So it's not always, again, clear to me where the real world uh, begins and ends in Ambergris just because of that kind of cross-pollination with history and everything. 
that's one of the the fascinations uh, of your fiction, I think, is that there's enough of the real world in it that it seems kind of familiar. You have a, a, a big city, you know, you'll have streets, mm-hmm. people drive around in cars. So it seems familiar, yet you've created this strain, this veneer of strangeness with the gray caps. Uh, tell us a little bit about the gray caps. You've loved them for a long time. So tell us how you came into create them. Well, I think the gray caps um, were probably probably started as as um, my version of dwarves or elves or or things from Lovecraft. Um, they're kind of they 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 at first kind of represented kind of the pulp tradition in my work because I have a very wide range of influences, and some of them are from what you would call loosely the literary mainstream, and some of them are from what you loosely call genre. And the gray caps definitely came out of that. And and basically, they're these kind of shadowy people who were driven underground by the uh, the whaling clans that eventually colonized Ambergris. And uh, it's not clear necessarily from the novels and stories whether they have an advanced technology or a different technology, but they definitely have a different set of aims because it's, they're, they're relatively inscrutable in terms of of their intent. And it's not always clear whether it's a malign intent or not, but over time, they've been a very interesting symbol too, because they've kind of they've kind of ta- been symbolic in terms of whatever happens when an indigenous people is displaced in some way by uh, by by a colonizing power, um, and it's not always about primitive versus non-primitive technology. I mean, a good example is in Africa where. The British, uh, you know, took over and they forced a lot of Africans into large cities and took them out of their normal planting routines. And what you find later in this century is a lot of reasons that you have famine and things like that is because those indigenous populations had very sophisticated ways of getting enough crops and water and everything else out of, you know, out of what the the, the, the few resources they had. And, and once the British took them out of that. Um, they actually were, were dealing with a more primitive situation, even though the British had guns and everything else. And the same thing in places like Papua New Guinea. So, so really, that's kind of where I'm coming from with that. And, um, you know, I'm very much a proponent of, of, with certain elements, kind of keeping them shadowy in the background and uh, ha- leaving it to the reader's imagination. And so there's, they're kind of revealed and not at the same time. And I, I kind of like that. I kind of keep, like keeping some part of them kind of mysterious. One of the things that I found really enjoyable in Shriek was some of your descriptions of their technology, which mm. at once seems not like a technology at all, but also simultaneously like a highly advanced biotechnology. Mm. Yeah, and that's also partly from our own technologies. I mean, we have buildings now, experimental buildings, where um, they're self-cleaning using bacteria, um, for example. And uh, then other things were just taken from from various conflicts recently, like uh, in Afghanistan, originally U.S. forces dropped aid packets and bombs that were more or less the same color and shape. And so that in Ambergris becomes transformed into these fungal bullets, which when they become inert after they've hit something, are actually edible. And so you have these rather horrific scenes where people who have nothing else to eat are actually picking these bullets out of out of relatives' bodies to eat them to survive. And uh, so you get these echoes that are not quite parallels because you bring an element of the imagination to it. Uh, but a lot of the fungal technology stuff has some parallel in in modern or upcoming future warfare. But that part is actually a lot of fun. I mean, to just kind of extrapolate this whole different uh, technology, you know, that these gray caps have, and then kind of 
also extrapolate exactly what their purpose is in, in, in deploying it. One of the elements of Shriek and, and all your work is you have a playful sense of humor, dark, playful sense of humor. Tell us a little bit about how you explore that and, and how you use it to liven up the text. Well, first of all, I'm kind of an absurdist at heart. I don't really believe in institutions at all and usually try to send them up. I believe very much in the individual. And so I think that's where my sense of humor derives from. And as Woody Allen, I think, once said, it's, it's a time plus tragedy equals humor, and that's kind of where I'm coming from uh, with, with the comedy elements. But the other thing is that I sometimes use relatively experimental constructs in my fiction. Like there's a story in City of Saints that takes the form of a history essay. And so when I do something like that, because I'm, you know, obviously I'm, I'm trying to do more than just entertain, but I am also trying to entertain, you know, you don't want something that is already kind of unfamiliar to the reader to also be dry and humorless. And so a lot of times when I use experimental structures, I will throw in a lot more humor uh, than in the traditional type stories that I tell. Um, but also because that's kind of the way the world is. I mean, the, the world is a place where you have combinations of, of humor and tragedy almost all at once. I mean, a book like Catch-22 is very indicative of that. And so I feel in a way that I'd be lying about the world if I was serious all the time or humorous all the time. One thing that uh, a constant element of your fiction is incorporating bits of created nonfiction within your work. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about why you do that, who you're, you draw your influences from. Mm -hmm. um, well, it, you know, it has different purposes at, at different times, but I found that it's very difficult for someone to deny the reality of an imaginary place if they're supposedly holding an artifact in their hands uh, that's from that place or, or reading a facsimile document in, in a story or something that's, that's done that way. But it's also because it's about competing points of view. I mean, we get our information in the real world, not just from one source, from, but from all these fragmentary sources, and then kind of put together our view of what we think about events. And so a lot of times that's what I'm doing by using these different kinds of forms is I'm giving the reader different sources of information about the same thing so that the story kind of comes together in, in their own heads in the same way that they would, they would uh, put stuff together in the real world. And this leads me to the mosaic novel. It's a mm. term you've used. Now, generally, it's used to describe stuff like wild cards or thieves' world, but you mm. pull a much more literary version. I think you've have you created that genre yourself, if you call that a genre. Well, well, I think it's just that these these stories and novellas uh, began to accrete in such a way it was clear that they had a lot of a lot of cross dependence. I mean, there's some of them that you really can't even read independently. And so when it came time to talk about what City of Saints, for example, was, it didn't seem right to call it a short story collection because minor characters in one story will show up as major in, a, in another and vice versa. And so I came up with the term mosaic novel because that's really what it is. And in fact, the whole Ambergris cycle is basically one whole long novel, too, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, there's two more novels and a few short stories I'm going to write. And when I'm done, really, I'll be thinking of it as kind of a four or five thousand page book, um, because it does tell this complete story when you when you see the the finished structure. Um, I'm sorry, I may have lost the the focus of your question there. <laughs> well, I, I'm wondering when you came up with this term mosaic novel, was it mm -hmm. something you had mm -hmm. encountered before in the Thieves World books, or? No, I, I'm not even familiar with the Thieves World books, but um, no, I, I had not encountered the term before, and it, it has been attributed to me since, but I'm, I'm sure that someone must have used it before. 
Yeah. I, I, I don't know where the attribution would be, though. Well, my question for I mean, you Thieves is, World is, I think, more of a shared world thing because there's other, many people writing in the same universe, as I recall. Right. Now, my question for you is, you describe this as one four or 5,000-page book. Do you know the whole mm-hmm. story now? Yes, I do. I mean, I wrote this one original novella, Drayden in Love, back in 1992, and then when that finally came out in print in 1996, for some reason that just kind of seeing the book in hand kind of unlocked my imagination again. And in 1998... I came up with the rest of the story cycle, and the problem is just that I write so slowly, um, and and like Shriek took you know eight years that I just haven't finished it yet. Um, but I did come up with the whole cycle. That isn't to say every minute detail of every novel, but I know exactly where everything is going, and uh, how it's all going to end more or less. Tell us a little bit about this idea of competing competing points of view, mm. because you do a lot with this uh, narration. And in fact, Shriek is a ser- is a is a memoir, but it contains, as is appropriate from the title and afterward, a comment on the memoir within the memoir itself. Mm-hmm. Tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about that. Well, yeah, Shriek actually uh, has the is from Janice Shriek's point of view, a gallery owner, uh, and then she's basically talking about her brother Duncan's life and her own life, and then Duncan comes back and annotates her comments. You know, sometimes saying something as basic as "No, you got it wrong. This is how it happened." This is the other way, the, the real way it happened. And then at the end, there is actually an afterword from the editor, the supposed editor of the book, to try to help clarify uh, some of the issues in the book. The, the, again, in the real world, we get our information from so many different sources, and we just put it together. And even when you read a history book, there are many times that they're, they're showing different, different and competing views of the same event in history. And so I find it a really important and useful tool in building veracity and in, in building someone's in, in making sure that, that readers suspend their disbelief. Um, but it also, again, it's true to life. It's, it's the way we build up information, even more so now, you know, with the internet and the, and the fact that many of us are very fragmented because of that in terms of how we get information. One thing that makes your work have so much veracity and so much realism is the way you econ- you integrate the economic concerns of your characters. Mm-hmm. Tolkien's people didn't have to worry about where they're going to get lunch. They just walked into the inn and, and got the food. Y- mm-hmm. Your people are working for a living and at uh, occupations that are familiar to us. Tell us how and why you do that. I've thought about this for a long time because, you know, as a kid, it didn't really bother me in Lord of the Rings or some of these other books that they never dwelt on, you know, where they got their money from, what their economy was like. But when I started to read other kinds of fiction and realistic fiction, I saw how integral that was, obviously, to building character. It seemed to me like kind of a kind of a cheat. Um, And I also got really sick of seeing fantasy books that dealt with kings and queens going on quests. Um, It seemed to me that there were always these unfortunate underlings who who were never never part of the story. I mean even in something like the Narnia books when I when I went back and looked at them as an adult I was kind of outraged when I got to the end and it was like oh the poor beavers they just traded a a fascist system for a monarchy. How how nice. Um, But the, uh, the, the main thing is that um, I wanted to do, I wanted to try to keep that visionary quality, that surreal visionary quality that the best fantasy had, but has, but, but also have characters where you, would, you could imagine them going down to the corner store for, for a, a, a gallon of milk. Uh, you could imagine them having to have a day job. In other words, in, inject a, a, a bit of realism. 
And what I found is that the more I did that, the more it allowed me to go off uh, in a more surreal direction otherwise in the stories because the bedrock, the foundation of the story was realistic. And what I liken it to is, um, and it's not a, a perfect parallel, but it, it's close, is someone like Dali, uh, the painter, he, he has very surreal visions. But if you look at his work up close, he uses, uses realistic detail to get there. I mean, there's very realistic detail in a lot of those paintings. It's just the overall effect that's surreal. And so for me, the building blocks you know, have to be these realistic things that, that kind of tie the characters and the situation to the real world. And, and that obviously has to do with, with the economics of the situation. Um, there's many stories, like in City of Saints, uh, Martin Lake is a, is a starving artist in one story who gets involved in something terrible because he needs the money. Uh, and in, in and the cage is all about uh, another story in City of Saints is all about consumerism. I mean, Hogboten is entirely consumed by the pursuit of material things, and so it's kind of a dysfunctional form of needing money to survive. Um, and so, in Shriek is kind of the end result of that. I, I basically wanted to write this this character driven story about these people trying to survive in the city, um, and the things that happened to them over sixty years. And it just happens that the city is imaginary, <laughs> and that there are strange creatures living in the underground. Tell us a little bit about the, your commentary on the publishing business in Shriek. There's lots of really interesting things. One of the <laughs> most fantastic aspects of it in terms of fantasy is that somebody like Duncan Shriek gets five books published. <laughs> <laughs> right. In the real world, he would only get four books, and then he'd be reevaluated as to his sales. Um, well, you know, in a world like Ambergris, without TV, without the Internet, without other distractions, you know, authors are more important than they would be otherwise. And uh, although many people have typified the, there's a war in the, in the book between two publishing houses, it's actually a war between two merchant clans that happen to run publishing houses. Um, but, uh, but yes, it, it, I guess it is slightly unrealistic uh, in our world that, that a fringe historian like Duncan Shriek would at, at one, one point uh, become kind of a minor celebrity. Uh, but really what we're also talking about here is kind of a situation we're in right now where it seems like our consensus reality has kind of fractured. And instead of having facts and opinions, we just have opinions and more opinions. And so really the, the, the touchstone of, of Duncan Shriek's work is, is about belief. It's about whether people are going to believe in his absurd but possibly true theories about the gray caps or if they're going to continue to believe in the reality they believed in all along. And this is something I think we're dealing in, with in America right now is, you know, on, on issues like the Iraq war, on, on issues of politics and all other kinds of things, is are we going to buy into this, the, the mainstream reality that we're being given or are we going to give more credence to, to some points of view that might seem more out there but, but might actually be more accurate? I think one thing I noticed, and I thought it was strikingly beautiful and well done, are the parallels between the silence and 9-11. Tell us, was that deliberate? Well, the silence really was a stand-in for any kind of genocide to begin with. I mean, it's something, I mean, I was thinking of things like some of the early colonists who disappeared in, in America. I was thinking about various pogroms at various times. And then 9-11 happened, and it, it changed the context of the silence. And so it changed the context of Shriek while I was writing it. And so, yes, very much so, a parallel came in there. And, and whenever I was writing about the silence, I felt somewhat like I was writing a little bit about 9-11. Not entirely, but it became a small element of it. 
I certainly would not want to claim that that the silence became about 9/11 because it existed before that. Uh, but basically, the silence was, you know, this disappearance of 25,000 people in in the city of Ambergris with with no explanation. No one knows why it happens, and it becomes this kind of wound uh, in the city. And uh, you know, everyone thinks the Grey Caps were involved, uh, but they don't know for sure. And so that's part of why there's so much denial, which is something we're also suffering from now in this country is a certain amount of denial. Um, so, so it was weird how that, something that I already thought was kind of a powerful situation or image took on this added significance because of world events. You do a good job at exploring kind of mythic resonances within your work. Mm-hmm. You talked about Orpheus uh, mm-hmm. in Venice Underground, and you also do use the same kind of way, in the way that 9-11 has been mytho- mythologized, so too has the silence. Yeah, um, you know, it's uh, it all starts with charged images for me. It's the one part of my writing that's relatively automatic and that I didn't have to learn. And that is to say, when I use images or, or even events like the silence, um, just somehow naturally in the rough drafts, they take on a kind of resonance. And I don't know where that comes from. I don't know if it means that my parents read the right stuff to me as a kid or or the fact that my mother was an artist and therefore I had kind of a painter's eye when it came to fiction. Um, but yes, they, they tend to take on this kind of mythic resonance, which really works nicely in Shriek because then you have the difference between the kind of you know ground-level, eye-level view of things uh, from the narrator, but then you have these things in the background that have more significance. In, in Shriek, you do you take a look at a relationship that's not usually examined in fantasy or not often examined mm-hmm. in fantasy, which is a brother-sister relationship. Mm-hmm. And you have these people with competing careers and competing lives, one's up, one's down. Tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about create that relationship and how you explore it in this fantasy world you've created. Well, you know, I think that that particular thing has to do with my family dyma- dynamic growing up, which is, is to say that we were kind of divorced from the rest of our extended family because we were overseas. And so my family was my mother, my father, and my sister. And in fact, uh, and that, 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 that trip overseas, although it was wonderful, it, it more or less cut those ties. And so I didn't really have any sense of extended family. So for me, my sister was my family more or less, especially uh, when my parents began to, to, to become, uh, to, to draw apart. And, um, you know, so that, that has come out in my fiction several times. I mean, in Venice Underground, there's also a brother and sister. Um, and so that, that's where that comes from. Uh, it's funny, actually, because until uh, uh, I, I became involved with, with, with Anne, who's my wife now, I, I didn't really have a sense for the connections that people can have to even distant relatives. And so it was, it, it, it's kind of weird because there was kind of a sense of, of loss, you know, that I think is also expect, uh, expressed in Shriek, that, that, that there was just this, these relationships and, and nothing, nothing further. And I think this is actually my last last book in which I have that dynamic um, because I've become so integrated into Anne's family that, that I think now um, you, you begin to see more extended family stories. Uh, but that, that's, that, that's, you know, that's the, the common sense explanation of where that came from. One thing that you've been involved with and you comment on extensively in Shriek are movements in art, the way they work, the way they come about, and the way how utterly meaningless eventually they seem in terms of the time. So tell us a little bit about how the new art and the old art works in Shriek and how that maps to the new fabulists and versus the <laughs> cyberpunks. Well, I thought I could have a little bit of fun in Shriek because I figured that by the time 
<laughs> you know, if, if the book lasts and it's still in print in, you know, 10 years, no one will at that point really remember the new weird uh, or new fabulous anyway, because they're not really movements. But but it goes hand in hand with kind of my distrust of institutions that I'm very distrustful of literary movements, especially ones that seem artificially created and are built around uh, topics or, or authors who only have a passing similarity to one another. Um, and then there's also the danger of being typecast as one thing and not being able to get out of it. I mean, there's a couple of former cyberpunks who unfortunately haven't been able to get, get past that. Some have, but, but it can be very limiting in terms of how readers uh, label you. So I just kind of sent up uh, the new weird and new fabulous uh, by pointing out that you know the, the, the problem with movements is they tend to focus a lot of attention and energy on a few writers. And oftentimes there's other writers doing extremely interesting and eccentric and unique things, but because they're not doing it in quite the same vein that's popular at the moment, they get lost or forgotten. And that's my, my feeling really about this t period of time in surreal and fantasy fiction, is that there are authors out there not getting the attention right now that they deserve because of these labels that in 10 years or 20 years' time will become recognized as, as better or as good as the ones who are getting all the attention. So, you know, I prefer to look at things in terms of theme. You know, I'd much prefer to compare, like, Slaughterhouse-Five with uh, Ian M. Banks's Use of Weapons, a space opera, because they're both commentaries on war, than to say one's science fiction and one's not, you know, and therefore they, there can't be any comparison or contrast there. Tell us a little bit about your interest in art. You, you're not just interested in writing. In, and one of the things I think, Shriek is a very personal novel for you. I, I felt like I could see Jeff in Duncan mm -hmm. and Jeff in A Nameless Writer and mm -hmm. Jeff all over the place in this book. <laughs> well, my family's all over the place. I mean, there's there's bits of my sister and, and my parents and myself in all the characters in addition to, of course, what you bring through your imagination. Uh, but it is personal as kind of Martin Lake in City of Saints, uh, which is also about, uh, you know, art in a sense. Uh, because my mom is an artist and because I grew up in a, in a house or several houses where there was always a studio, there was always a place where there were paints, there was always the smell of paint, there was always something in progress. And um, so that, that's kind of my childhood. And uh, since my mother also studied art history, there was always that element to it as well. And so... You know, I, I honestly feel like I, I sometimes come to things as, I, as, a, as a painter would. I mean, when I was starting Shriek, the most important thing to me wasn't plot. It wasn't trying to figure out what was going to happen. It was getting the right texture for the prose at the beginning. And so it's kind of like a painter when they mix paints, when they, when they put things together that way, they're trying to find the perfect texture, the perfect color. You know, I rewrote and rewrote and rewrote the first three or four paragraphs until I had that texture and tone right, and then I continued from there. Um, so in that way, yeah, it's very personal. I mean, anything to do with painting in any of these books is directly from some personal experience. And I think one of the great frustrations for me is I am not good at painting, I'm not good at drawing. And that's one reason why I surround myself with other artists and, and illustrators. Uh, City of Saints is lavishly illustrated, and, and some of those illustrations are integral to the, the stories. And an upcoming Ambergris novel is actually interesting because... In parts of it, I'm riffing off a New York City artist, Hawk Alfredson's work. Uh, he had done some stuff inspired by City of Saints and Shriek, and now I'm being inspired by his art in, in the next novel. And so it's also a way to collaborate for me, and one that I find very, very fulfilling. 
Well, speaking of your next novel, it's how how far along are are you in it, and when can we expect it? Um, I'm about ten thousand words into the next Ambergris novel, which is called Zamalon File. But because it's supposed to be read uh, both straightforwardly and as something that, if you decode it, has a totally different meaning, it's something that's going to take a couple more years to do. It's also being presented as kind of a uh, document or found artifact. And so there are some graphic design concerns as well. So I'm going very slowly on that to make sure I get it right. And in the meantime, I'm finishing up uh, another short novel, which is something that I started in 1998 and put aside to work on Shriek. And uh, I think I will not go into any details on that so as not to jinx it, but it's not ambergris-related. One thing that you seem to quite enamored of is the footnote as a literary technique. <laughs> it, it, it's, tell and us, yet Daniel Lusky's footnotes irritated me beyond belief. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> so I, I yeah. guess I, I can see that because in Shriek, you, you, uh, it seems like you had an opportunity to either do footnotes or use a slightly different prose style. And, and mm-hmm. the prose style that you came up with, I think, is quite clever. Tell us, can you describe it for the listeners? Uh, the prose style? Yeah, the way you cut between Janice's narration and Duncan's narration. Yeah. Um, basically, uh, there were several choices to be made with Shriek because, again, there are two narrators, and one's commenting on the other. Duncan is commenting on Janice's uh, narrative, which he's typed up in kind of a fury of, of, of condensed time and space, and, and then he comes along, finds it, and annotates it. Um, so, you know, there were several suggestions just from a typographical uh, standpoint. Uh, do Duncan's asides go into the main text? Are they done as footnotes? Are they done as maybe a separate column on the side like Alistair Gray did in, uh, I think, 1984, Janine. Um, and I finally decided that, that it would be best to just leave them as uh, parenthetical asides because they're very much part of the text, and to do them as footnotes would mean that the reader's eye would be continually going back and forth between the main text and the supposedly non-main text. But the fact is that Duncan's asides are part of the main text, and so Tor found an elegant solution in that they used... Um, these kind of uh, modified parentheses that are more elegant than normal ones, so they stand out a bit more. At one point, they wanted to do Duncan's asides in a green ink, but the problem is the black and the green look too close, uh, and and using like red would just be obnoxious. Uh, So I really like that solution. That's how I wrote the novel, is is kind of this dialogue between them, even though Duncan comes and writes it later. And readers so far have really responded to that. I know that all of my editors have been very nervous about how readers would respond to that. But the fact of the matter is it makes it seem natural. If more attention were drawn to it in some kind of weird typographical way, it would actually make it harder to get into those characters. It it works superbly well. I, I made it much easier to read, and I was thinking of uh, Mark Z. Danielewski's book, uh, House of Leaves, because he mm-hmm. has a similar um, two stories being told at once, and one of them is told mm-hmm. entirely in the footnotes with giant black courier type. I'm wondering, when you're creating some of your more complicated pieces uh, that involve elements of graphic design, do you do the graphic design on the page yourself? Do you do that in handwriting, computer? Are you Uh, writing in Quark? um, Basically, I I do uh, quick outlines in Word using some of their diagram functions and show the designer what it is I want, basically. But I try to stop short of being too... um, too final about it because I want them to be able to bring their imagination to it as well. So sometimes they come up with a better solution. But, uh, you know, that that technique actually is something that uh, Nabokov uses in Ada. 
uh, where there are two narrators. Um, and also uh, Richard Grant uses in something called Views from, I think, the Oldest House. And uh, so I, I kind of wanted to renovate the technique because I thought both of them had kind of missed the, missed the point of the technique. Uh, in both, they didn't bother to separate out the, the two narrators, and so it made it very difficult for readers unnecessarily, for one thing. But yeah, I did think about footnotes like Daniel Lutsky had used. I mean, I did look over House of Leaves when I was halfway through doing the layout for City of Saints, and there were some things that became influenced by the decisions that he had made in that book. Uh, otherwise, that was kind of a case of parallel development, um, I think. One thing that's interesting, when you're writing a book where one character is commenting upon what another says, a lot of, about halfway through, the reader starts to think, wow, why isn't he talking about this statement she made? As a writer, do you sometimes make a decision? Did you, like, have Duncan say something, comment upon pieces that you later decided just to drop out? Yes, actually, in fir the first draft, all of Duncan's comments were placeholders, and a lot of them were very short and much more sarcastic than they are in the final. And uh, as the novel evolved, Duncan evolved, and uh, so I, I deleted a lot of stuff that was just short and sarcastic and added some new stuff. And then, of course, there was a round of edit edits from my editor at Tor, which also changed the nature of his voice. Um, there was, there was the, the thing where I had to make sure that I was getting the most out of both his voice and Janice's because of the fact that they're both writing, she's writing her text and he's writing his comments near the ends of their lives, or, or at least in their 50s or 60s, looking back. And so what the younger them might have said is not what the older one would. Um, and so I had to make sure that that perspective was layered in there correctly. Um, so that was actually the biggest, the biggest issue with regard to that. You like history, and this is a history, and history is something that seems to consume you. At one point in Shriek, somebody says, uh, I believe it's uh, Janice says that they were bringing the past with us to a new place. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about this concept, because I think it shows up in a lot of your work. It's funny, because history is one of the most subjective things, whether personal history or public history. And yet there are concrete you know, memories and things that that uh, we do carry with us, and as subjective as they are, they're they're they constitute who we are as people, and um, and so I think Janice, when she's saying that, is just recognizing the fact later that that um, as much as she would have liked to, when she moved from uh, Stockton, I think it was, to Ambergris. Um, she couldn't divorce herself from her past, that no matter what she did, whether she brought nothing with her physically or not, you know, no objects or keepsakes, she still would be, she would still have her father's death in her head, that, 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 that it would still be something that influenced her her entire life. When you write about the fantastic, you do a good job of evoking a lot of strangeness with one detail, and I'm thinking here in particular of the starfish. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about how how that works, and so which really prepares us for this mm -hmm. creation of this machine. It's it's important that there not be a confusion of images, and so I, I've 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 actually started paring down in my prose because of the fact that a lot of the images are already charged or symbolic or in some way get to something subconscious. I've started paring down so that. Each one can have the impact it should have. And so 
when Duncan brings this 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 uh, land dwelling starfish with him from the underground, it's it's really much more powerful than if he gave her a full description of everything that had happened down there, because it is so alien and odd. It's 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 in a sense an artifact within the text, almost like the artifacts where I use nonfiction forms to to kind of build veracity. But it's a it's a it's an artifact in the text to convince Janice, Duncan trying to convince Janice, and um, and it fits kind of with all the fungal technology and everything else and, and the kind of sense of strange beauty. But I also like the dislocation of it because it makes you look at starfish in general differently. The fact of the matter is, and I say this over and over again in interviews, but we live in a very strange world with very strange creatures, and we just we just tend not to look with fresh eyes. And so I like the idea of putting the starfish in this unfamiliar context so it makes you see something familiar as what it is, which is to say very beautiful and strange and alien in a way. At one point in the novel, Duncan uses his students in a manner that's reminiscent of, to me, Seti at home. <laughs> Wait, I, it, tell me... It, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he yes, basically, he yeah. manipulates his students. To, could you describe that for us? <laughs> he basically sees his um, he sees the gray caps as this giant puzzle to be solved, and so to him, it's this huge map or this huge uh, bunch of either puzzle pieces or or blank, you know, uh, paper on which he has to fill in the gaps. And and at one point, you know, I think inspired, though it may not it may not be explicit on the page, inspired by the machine that he sees underground, he kind of builds his own machine out of students' minds, kind of a computer of sorts, where he gets different sets of students working on different little parts of the puzzle. And he also does this, uh, is able to do this because by having them work on a tiny little piece of the puzzle each, none of them can really see what the larger picture is and get him in trouble for his kind of heretical thinking. And so that's the way it's described in, in the book, actually, um, <laughs> that he's built this kind of organic machine out of all these student brains, uh, which I think is quite an actually amusing image in some ways. And I'm sure there are some professors who do that <laughs> to some extent, maybe not on the grand scale that Duncan envisions, but, you know, still. Tell us a little bit about why you're so interested in mushrooms and fungus. <laughs> Well, you know, it kind of creeps up on you in Florida. You don't really think of Florida. When you think of Florida, you think of Miami, for example. But, you know, Florida is a very muggy, subtropical climate. And like today, it just rained, and there's all kinds of mushrooms and fungus kind of popping up all over the place. And so, you know, someone asked me that question a while back, and I said I didn't know. And then I started thinking about it. I started looking around our, our lawn and our yard and the sides of our house, and I realized, well, you know, it's been there for years, <laughs> for 20 years of living in, in uh, North Florida or Central Florida. You've, you've, you know, I've been walking past this stuff all the time. But on another level, it's, they just fascinate me because they're neither part of the animal kingdom nor the plant kingdom. They fascinate me for some of their attributes. Um, in uh, a story called King Squid and City of Saints, uh, the father of, uh, of one of the characters uh, is uh, a specialist in mushrooms and feeds little bits of iron filings in the, in the dirt underneath one of the mushrooms until they, they, the mushroom gradually becomes partially uh, made of metal. And uh, that's actually taken from some experiments sciences, scientists have done. So, and then you read about, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, giant uh, 
nodules of fungus under, you know, cities in Colorado, you know, with just these little fruiting bodies above above ground, but but you know, two two a two mile organism underneath. And again, it just seems like we're living in a science fiction or fantasy novel already. And so I think that's what, what appeals to me. Uh, they're also quite beautiful and quite various in shape and form. And, uh, you know, it, it, it probably also has to do with, you know, as a kid reading Lovecraft and people like that, and some things just kind of sticking in your brain, like mushrooms. Jeff, you made an experimental movie based on your novel, mm-hmm. Shriek. Could you tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about that movie? Yeah, I'd always wanted to, I've always wanted to experiment with film just because my writing is already very visual. And um, so, and I also always wanted to write a script because I'd always wanted to do something that was driven by either voiceover or dialogue. And a lot of my stories aren't as driven by dialogue as, as one might expect. So I did a short script and then I started pulling the pieces together. Um, was able to get the church a rock band out of Australia to do a really wonderful soundtrack for it. And uh, got uh, Yua uh, Lindros, who's a uh, Finnish uh, designer and director, to do do the movie, and it's kind of in a Lynchian kind of mode. That the, the, the issue really was, you know, not only just that we're doing a low-budget independent film, but also do I want to do an actual reproduction of the city, a literal one, uh, because all these readers already have an image in their heads of, of what the city looks like. And so we decided to go for kind of a mood-based thing where you suggest more than show directly, um, both because we had the low budget and also not to ruin the reader's experience. So the visual style, I would say, is very different from the visual style if I was actually trying to replicate the books. Um, but that's deliberate. Um, it has kind of a deliberately grainy feel to the film. We kind of wanted to make it feel like it was literally a transmission from another place, like you were looking down the rabbit hole into Ambergris in a sense. Uh, and so it's very alien and very strange in that way. And it's been a very, very good experience. There were, there were, uh, I think, 20 uh, movie showings across the country when Shriek came out, uh, some in movie theaters, some in art galleries, in places like uh, New York and, and uh, Portland and San Francisco. And it generated a lot of interest for the book, sure, but it was also a great way to be able to, to, to show the movie, which is kind of, I think, the first, first step for me into getting into those, those, other, uh, those other media. Uh, since uh, I think there will also be a short film associated with the Zamalon file. We've been speaking with Jeff Vandermeer. His new novel is Shriek and Afterward. Thank you for speaking with us, Jeff. Thank you. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.